Hello and welcome to Shelf Life. My name's Sean, and today I'm excited to share with you our recording of an author event Bristol Libraries hosted during LGBT Plus History Month this year. In this recording, Frank Wynne, a literary translator, writer and editor, discusses his latest book, Queer, LGBTQ Writing from Ancient Times to Yesterday, with writer, publisher and co-chair of Outstories Bristol, Cheryl Morgan. So first, just a little bit about Wynne's book. So Queer is a compilation of 80 of the finest works representing queer love by LGBTQ authors. It contains stories, poems, extracts and scenes from countries all over the world and throughout time. And it's an unabashed, unapologetic anthology that gives voice to LGBT plus people who, as we know, are often unfairly silenced. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life. Welcome, everybody. My name is Catherine. I am delighted to be joined this evening by two wonderful speakers. The author, literary translator, writer and editor, Frank Wynne, who's the author of the new anthology, Queer, LGBTQ Writing from Ancient Times to Yesterday. So yes, so delighted to welcome this evening Frank and Cheryl, Cheryl Morgan, who will be our host for the evening. So Cheryl is an award-winning editor and publisher, co-chair of Outstories Bristol, which is a group that does a lot of work researching and preserving stories of Bristol's LGBT community. If you've not seen it already, there's a brilliant interactive map online, which I've just been looking at myself recently. And if you've not had a look, I just recommend going have a look at it. It's so interesting. So yes, so thank you both for, for joining us for this event. And without further ado, I will hand over to Cheryl now. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and also absolutely delighted to be talking to Frank. Catherine has, has already given you an introduction, though it says here that it won the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the Scott Moncrief Prize, the Premier Valet Inclan, which I probably mispronounced, and the 2020 Republic of Consciousness Prize. So you're doing all right, Frank. You've produced this, this lovely book, which you know has to be a labour of love of some sort. I mean, I'm involved somewhat in publishing. I've done the occasional anthology. And this book, um, dear listeners, this book is covering um, all of queer writing from every country in the world for the whole sweep of human history. And that, to me, sounds like an absolutely monumental task. Frank, what on earth possessed you to try doing this? Well, it was a very, very stupid idea. Basically, I had been asked previously um, to do an anthology of short stories and translation, which I did. And that was, you know, two or three years of my life. And afterwards, they said, I don't suppose you have any other ideas. And I said, well, nobody has ever done a proper LGBTQ plus, you know, anthology. They're all kind of Penguin Book of British gay short stories or Polish lesbian poetry or and it's I quite like uh, to do something that will cover absolutely as many people as I can from as many countries as I can assuming that they would say well you know it all sounds a bit small but they said okay so this is your deadline of at least 140 to allow for those we can whittle down when we don't get permissions from the people who want too much money and we'll try and whittle it down to you know 100 one of the things that you realize at that point is that being a, in my case, gay cis man from, you know, rural Ireland, you think you've been reading queer literature all your life. 
But actually, you haven't. There's a whole vast amount of it that you've never come across because, I mean, partly because historically a lot of these voices were silenced or suppressed or whatever, but also because even through the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, back when gay men's press existed, back when all of almost all queer writing was published by small publishers somewhere. And then because, of course, I'm a translator, because I work with other languages and with other translators, what do I know about the fact that there is an extraordinary Turkish trans writer from the 1970s or that there is a Cameroonian gay writer currently writing, let alone, you know, the long history of LGBT writing and queer writing in in Asia, in China, in Japan, in, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, it was, you make a list, you throw half of the people out, you make another list, and then people keep sending you new names and new things, and you read them and you think, no, that's really good, that has to go in, that has to go in. That. And, yeah, it's one of the things that you will know, having done anthologies, is at some point, usually just before you have a breakdown, you think... When will I have read enough? And the answer is, you will never have read enough. So you will just eventually have to stop. Yeah. One of the ways, obviously, that you can narrow things down is to come up with some sort of rules for selection. Um, Now, you've already made the, the rules as broad as you can by including the whole world and the whole of history. When people pick up anthologies, they think, well, why didn't you include this? And it's like, you start by making some arbitrary rules. And I decided that I didn't want other people telling our stories. Um, There are a number of extraordinary, well, there are lots and lots of extraordinary works about LGBT people um, that are written by people who are not themselves or, to the best of our knowledge, LGBT. I thought that Middlesex was an extraordinary novel. I think that Miss Jane is an extraordinary novel. Both deal with intersex or trans characters, but neither of the authors is. So I just thought that just for this once, we didn't want somebody else coming in and, to coin a word, straight explaining what it means to be who we are. The other thing I decided was that I wanted the writing to touch in some way on desire or identity or gender because otherwise you can include i mean i could have and i considered including somerset mom who very much looks at the world through a queer eye um but there's nothing there specifically about him and of course this does mean that you are looking at people who either had the freedom and the luxury given the society in which they were in to write openly or you're including people who wrote privately. So I'm including Emily Dickinson. Um, I don't think anybody, I mean, there has been a lot of talk about Emily Dickinson's sexuality, but my best guess is Emily Dickinson never had sex with anyone, probably including herself. On the other hand, her writing is so extraordinarily erotic um, that I couldn't not. And then you have all the people who, it's meaningless to say that Shakespeare was bisexual or gay or that or that um, Ovid or Catullus or even Sappho was LGBT in the way that we think of these things. These are different societies in which 
how you behaved had much more to do with your class and the money you had than your sexual orientation or your gender identity might have been. Just a couple of things for the, the listeners here. We do, of course, have Mary Renault listed on the Outstories website as probably lesbian, um, but all of her writing is about gay men and therefore she's outside of, of what she's writing about. Uh, and of course, the, the split between homosexual and heterosexual as, as types of human beings was invented in 1869. So it's a very modern idea. Before that, people just had sex and didn't really worry about it, which sounds quite like a good idea to me. But you, you one of the, the questions that people always ask is, have you got any favourites? And I guess this is an opportunity for you to read that poem you asked for. This is something that I have never forgotten. We are also living in the post-it's-a-sin world. So Russell T. Davis has uh, finally come full circle and he has written a piece about AIDS and about the 1980s, which I found, I mean, it is charming and beautiful and well-acted and I found it incredibly harrowing to watch because I am pushing 60 and I was in many of these hospital rooms as many people were and I was at these funerals and I was you know and in part the pandemic reminds me of that and it is no minor fact that the existence of a COVID vaccine is largely based on the fact that for the past 30 years an RNA vaccine for HIV has been attempted to be developed. But one of the poems that I remember from that period, from a series of poems that Tom Dunrod wrote, is called The Man With Night Sweats. I wake up cold. I who prospered through dreams of heat wake to their residue, sweat and clinging sheets. My flesh was its own shield. Where it was gashed, it healed. I grew as I explored the body I could trust, even while I adored the risk that made it robust. A world of wonders in each challenge to the skin. I cannot but be sorry the given shield was cracked. My mind reduced to hurry, my, first, my flesh reduced and wrecked. I have to change the bed, but catch myself instead. Stopped, upright where I am, hugging my body to me as if to shield it from the pains that will go through me, as if hands were enough to hold an avalanche off. There were people that I reread and thought, oh my God, this is so much better than I thought it was when I was young. And Tom Gunn is one. Audrey Lord is one. You reread Audrey Lord and you wish that Audrey Lord was president and probably, you know, um, queen of the entire universe. Um, and you reread people in new ways. Ros Caveney's translations of Catullus, which sort of shrug off the kind of academic, these are translations of first century AD, mildly erotic poems, and reinvent them in a way that is hugely erotic and inventive and funny and crude and, and alive. And those were, um, I mean, similarly, reading Imogen Binney's Nevada, which is not here, though there's a short story by Imogen here. Nevada is like being... Um, very affectionately punched repeatedly in the face. It's an amazing novel and one that was so overlooked when it was originally published that eventually she simply made it available online for free so that people could read it, as opposed to it being, you know, this was something that was that was nominated for a Lambert, made and won a Lambert for all I remember. But um, these are things that, that you suddenly think, 
This is an extra, it's one of the reasons why so many of the authors are 20th, 21st century. They are about increasing visibility. They are about lots of people suddenly emerging. And when I say that, emerging in relatively small places. I mean, it is that much more difficult if you're in in Cameroon, if you're in Korea, if you're in Indonesia, if you're in many countries uh, throughout the world to be published at all these days. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a wonderful Hungarian poet in there, but these days being LGBT in Hungary is not what it was 15 years ago. Um, you know, every single um, piece of progress that was made has been rolled back. And we see exactly the same, you know, in, in uh, both in, in, in Russia. Actually, you know, the back, backlash, if that's what they want to call it, uh, in the US through the Trump years, particularly against trans people. Um, um, and one of the things, um, so when I was, I, I tweeted about this not long before it came out, and somebody uh, responded to my tweet and said, isn't it sad that we still need an anthology like this in the 21st century? And I said, yes, but when I talk to the LGBT writers and poets that I know, and they tell me they've had a letter from their publisher saying, sorry, we already have a trans poet. We already have a black gay writer. The answer to which is you already have a hundred white, cis, straight men who are writing novels. What exactly is your point? But it's that notion that we, sh that we should still be niche, that we appeal only to each other, as opposed to the fact that this is human experience. You know, I read lots of novels and poetry about straight people. I'm not prejudiced. Yeah, just to, to pick up on one thing of that, so you, you've clearly made the right choice with Rosie's Catullus poems. I mean, I'm biased because she's a very dear friend. But over the weekend, I was attending an online seminar or conference for queer classicists. Um, the entire weekend was the stuff organised by people at Oxford, would you believe? And we, those of us who were in the know, started telling everybody else about Rosie's translations and the People just went crazy about them. They love them. This is, this is actual young classicists. And well done you for including them. Uh, I remember giving a copy of her book in, when I, I was in South Africa um, last year uh, to a friend who is a classicist, who picked it up and started reading and said, she's completely got the point of this. <laughs> and, and it's wonderful when people recognise that. So, yeah, you've been talking a little bit about the, the difficulty of, of finding people. I mean, you, you've included people from all over the world. And some of them, of course, we know. I mean, you know, Verlaine and Rimbaud, people will have heard of. Magnus Hirschfeld, people will have heard of. But, you know, even being a translator, how do you go about finding all of these people in other languages? So there exists um, for translators, um, as there does as there does, I assume, for many other things, a hive mind, you basically just say, okay, so I'm looking for, you know, queer writers anytime, any place would be helpful if they've already been translated. If they haven't already been translated, I need you to make a case for them and I need you to tell me that you'll translate them. Then you talk to editors and um, queer writers in English, uh, because again, you, it's impossible to know everyone. You're not going to know everyone. And so what happens is you get an endless flood of emails 
and you have conversations down the pub. And um, then you will say, yeah, no, I'm thinking of including, you know, this Hebrew poet. And somebody says, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, I mean, there are much better, you know, gay or queer or whatever Hebrew poets than this. And they give you another list. And so you start reading again. There isn't, I mean, I did want to include as many languages. I could have included a lot more French queer writers. It would have been possible to include Bataille and De Sade and Gide and De Beauvoir. And I mean, but again, the worry then is that what this then becomes is what people call the canon. So people that we, being sort of Western literary types, have already accepted as being canonical. And I, I didn't want to do that. It's, it's Most people will have heard of these people. They don't. I think an anthology is a starting point. I like to think of it as every single listicle ever published in any magazine or online of the hundred best novels ever. You're going down, you hit 33 and you've got JK Rowling and you literally want to punch through the screen and strangle someone, you know, and, uh, or you discover that actually it's supposed to be the greatest novels ever. And yet all but two of them were written in English, probably in England, probably by, you know, a cis straight man. And it's, it, it has to be at the end, a, an entirely personal and subjective thing. So you include things because you think they are wonderful because they spoke to you and you hope they will speak to other people. I, I would have needed 10 times the number of pages to include all of the people that I read, let include let, let alone all of the people I didn't get round to or couldn't, or there were no translations available. Um, it's 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 infuriating, but it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. My editor at Head of Use, I was still changing while they were typesetting, and I would say, okay, look, look, I think um, we could we could possibly lose Catherine Mansfield. And we could bring in this extraordinary, you know, Samoan. And it's like, this is not a newspaper. You don't get to change it the night before we go to press. But it's it's what you, it's a constant journey of discovery. And if I have always been on a journey of discovery through queer literature, this is just one that was speeded up a lot. So talking about discoveries of, of these people that you found from around the world and in obscure corners, if I'm coming to the book fresh, who is it that I would never have heard of that I should go and read first? There is an extraordinary non-binary novelist from Greenland called Nivet Kornilsson, who wrote her first novel. In, she's, I think, 23, maybe 24. She wrote her first novel in Greenlandic, which is not remotely related to European languages. She then translates herself into Danish, and she is translated from Danish by a woman called um, Anna Halliger. Actually, her original title is much better. It is Homo Sapien, with an E on the end to make it feminine. Uh, the book, as translated into English, is called Crimson, if you live in the UK, and it's published by Virago. It is called Last Night in Nut, which happens to be the capital of Greenland. Uh, if you're buying it in the US, Max Loeb, who's a, a Cameroonian writer, um, there is an autobiographical book coming out at the end of... February, called A Long Way From Douala, um, which is translated by a friend of mine called Ros Schwartz. 
there's a wonderful London poet called Keith Jarrett. And you can actually see quite a lot of Keith performing on, on, online on YouTube. He does quite a lot of performance poetry. Um, but actually his, um, his written poetry is, is also extraordinary. I really, really could go on and on. Um, Andrew McMillan, who is an extraordinarily powerful gay poet. If you have not already read Imogen Binney, then actually you can download a free novel, which is called Nevada, and it will blow your mind. But obviously, you could also wait for Cat Fitzpatrick's um, new novel, which is, you know, Manhattan, um, Trans Girls Go Wild, written entirely in stanzas that she's pilfered from Eugenio Nyegen by Pushkin. I mean, the extraordinary range and, and breadth of it is, is amazing. So that's just four, you know, that, that, you know, that should keep you over the weekend. And I, I think now we've got to the time of the evening where we should be opening up to audience questions. So Catherine has been looking after the, uh, the chat for us. A question here from Sam. Would you say that historically queer literature was predominantly directed towards adults with adult content? And I guess a follow on from that is, do we know of any literature for children that might be included there i mean historically there's very little uh historically if you go back there are passionate friendships you know if you ask me all of the mallory towers books are coded lesbian and we're talking about enid blyton who played tennis in the nude you know i mean um these are the only two salient facts that i know about enid blyton in terms of queer literature where the sexuality of the people is is clear. I mean, I need to, we need to be in the sort of 60s and 70s before I can think of anything. All of the early radio plays by, by Lee Hall, I Love You, Jimmy Spud, and, and so forth, are all coded gay. They are not specifically gay, and frequently the characters in there, they're prepubescent and they may not have any sense of who they are, but they are all coded game in, in lots of ways. Um, if you go back to things like the Water Babies, then yes, there is an amount of, of, of gay coding in, in sort of 19th century children's literature, but to what extent? I mean, actually, um, the most obvious thing, uh, and I'm sure it's not in print anymore, is a novel by um, J.M. Barry called The White Bird. So all of J.M. Barry's literature is is queer-coded from Peter Pan through everything else. The most obvious is a book called The White Bird, uh, which was published within his lifetime and which all of his friends said should immediately be taken off the shelves and he should never write anything like that again. There's the point at which, I mean, children's literature really begins in the late 19th century. I mean, before that, you're looking at pedagogic children's literature. You're looking at things that were intended to teach children things. You aren't looking specifically at things that were used to entertain them. I mean, I think that one of the odd things about growing up gay is that you scoured everything that you could for any relationships that might be coded as queer. So, you know, I was perfectly happy to think that the Hardy Boys were, you know, indulging in incest, if, if that suited them kind of thing. But there, there's quite a lot of very romantic uh, adventure novels that include um, all girls together, all boys together. And throughout the 20th century, 
but where actually the notion of, of sexuality is absent. Mm-hmm. Of course, with um, literature for trans people now, trans kids tend to come to an awareness of their identity a lot younger than anyone would come to an awareness of sexuality. So things like Marcus Hewitt's 10,000 Dresses and, and a whole lot more that are available now, which is, is lovely. And the, in story time, people do a wonderful job. Geo is actually, you know, in, incredibly sort of, I mean, there's quite a lot, um, there, uh, there is a lot more now, I mean, and there is quite a lot, I mean, there is now a huge subsection of gay, um, lesbian, uh, YA, but I mean, I did, I did think of asking for permission to use uh, a couple of pages from Jenny lives with somebody in Martin, what, what she called, yeah. what's the... Jenny lives with somebody, yes, whatever it was, the thing that sparked Section 28. Uh, And I wanted to include a couple of pages for it because it was a fundamental book. It was one where there were questions in the house. It was one where, you know, it was just before Section 28 and it was one of the things that led to uh, the vicious backlash of promoting uh, a gay lifestyle. I mean, one of the things I think that I found is that Every push for freedom, you know, I mean, the 1970s, which was a great, a great period for gay rights, at least in the United States and much of Western Europe. And indeed, you know, for very limited trans acknowledgement and so forth, um, ends up in the 1980s when, you know, AIDS is used to bully us all back into a closet somewhere. Jenny lives with Eric and Martin. Thank you, Drag Queen Story Hour. And at this point, I'm afraid we have to stop answering questions and hand back to the lovely people from Bristol Libraries. Very well. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure. Cheryl and Frank, thank you both so much. I'm afraid we have, uh, yes, we have just run out of time. So thank you also to the audience for your questions and comments. Um, It's been really interesting reading those. So thank you for sending those through. I don't know if the audience at home are able to find the little the little reactions emoji on the bottom, but in case you're not able to give a virtual round of applause, on behalf of everyone here, thank you, Cheryl and Frank, so much for um, your really interesting discussion this evening, for sharing that conversation with us. I found that it gave really great insights into the whole process of putting together an anthology, and it actually sort of felt like a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at publishing and and I guess that's what happens when you have two editors talking so yes so on behalf of everyone here thank you so much for joining us this evening oh it's been an absolute pleasure and and apologies to Rosario I didn't get to the Spanish question but there are several Spanish-speaking writers in there um it was it's been absolutely glorious and um speaking to you and if you go to voices.lgbt there's a whole list of all of the authors there and there's also a list of LGBT or queer bookshops. And if you can give them your custom, they are largely small bookshops. Most of them will send by post. Please support them. They've supported us for a very long time. So I did share a link to bookshop.org, which is a new website that will link you through to independent bookshops. So if you're not lucky enough to have one local to you, you can visit their website. Um, for the Bristol residents, actually, there's um, a couple of really fantastic independent bookshops. In North Bristol, we've got Max Minerva's, they're in Henley's, and then in South Bristol, there is, it's in Bedminster, it's Storysmith. Um, it's a wonderful bookshop as well, so I'd really highly recommend supporting them if you can. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get hold of a digital copy for Bristol Bristol libraries yet. However, we will have the physical copies in due time when we reopen. We will hopefully have some updates. 
with regards to that. A huge thank you to the publishers, Head of Zeus, um, for their help organising this event. Big thank you to Lauren for her help putting it together. And I think that's everything from me. Just one final um, really huge thank you um, from Bristol Libraries to Cheryl Morgan and Frank Wynn. Thank you both so much. Thank you very much, Catherine, and thank you to Bristol Libraries. Thank, thank you, everybody. And thanks, Frank, for the great book. Thank you so much. Have a lovely rest Hi, of your everyone. evening. Okay, bye. Bye, take care. Thank you very much for listening to that recording of Cheryl Morgan in conversation with Frank Wynne, the author of queer LGBTQ writing from ancient times to yesterday. We have copies of the book in our Bristol and Southwest libraries, so visit the Libraries West website to reserve a copy to your local library. I really enjoyed listening to this event and it's made me so excited to learn more about LGBT authors. I found the reading of Tom Gunn's poem, The Man with Night Sweats, so moving, especially this part. Hugging my body to me, as if to shield it from the pains that will go through me, as if my hands were enough to hold an avalanche off. I think it's a poignant testimony to the suffering, but ultimately bravery, that people with HIV AIDS have endured. LGBT plus people have definitely made great steps toward wider straight society, recognising and supporting people with HIV AIDS, like the recent Russell T Davies, It's a Sin TV series um, that was mentioned during this event. But there is still a way to go. So thank you for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about free upcoming online events like this one, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. There will be a link in the show notes for you to follow. Please subscribe, rate and review Shelf Life wherever you listen to the podcast and get in touch via the Bristol Libraries social media accounts with the hashtag Shelf Life Bristol. Like always, we want to give a huge thanks to Luke, a volunteer who edits and transcribes the episodes, Dan for the theme tune, Will, a library assistant from Avonmouth who polishes off the sound, and Ollie, a library assistant at Knoll for the transitional music. They all make shelf life possible with their amazing skills and generosity. Thank you for listening and bye for now.